Welcome to the Mindful Mutiny Podcast. I'm Jeremy Van Wert, CEO, therapist, and high-level coach. On Mindful Mutiny, we thoughtfully rebel against anything that keeps people from obtaining their highest potential. You are going to want to listen today to the podcast guest that we have. We have Tracy Root, a person that I have known for a very long period of time. She is a coach. She has an amazing story to tell about running up against some really difficult things in life. She had a life that she thought she was going to live. Different things happened. She had to pivot. She had to be resilient. She had to change everything about what it is that life was to her. And what she does now is she helps people do that very thing and transcend all sorts of things. So today, the podcast is about the power of positivity, rising above during adversity. And when you feel lost, how do you continue to strive? So Tracy, welcome. Dang, that sounds great. <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Jeremy. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, absolutely. Tracy, you have one heck of a story that goes back a ways. So where did you grow up? Where, where was your kind of early life starting? Yeah. Well, I always say that I grew up in Silicon Valley, but the truth is I went to five different elementary schools. So I grew up in a lot of different places. Many of them were in the South Bay, South San Francisco Bay area. Um, I did have a little stint when we lived in New York for a short period of time. Um, but, you know, I always kind of felt like I was the girl who was new at school. Like I said, five elementary schools. Every now and then there might be two years, but sometimes it was just one year to school before we went on. My dad was in semiconductor sales with companies in the Silicon Valley in the early days of computers. Um, growing up in Cupertino, it's very funny. I listening to the Steve Jobs biography. I was, I'm very much an audio book person. Uh, listening to that was almost like listening to my own history because he would call out things that were in Cupertino in the seventies when I lived there. So, you know, Cupertino, Saratoga, different places in the South Bay, but never in the same house for more than a couple of years because my dad was moving up in his corporate ladder and we'd move to a better neighborhood in a bigger house or a nicer place. And so that formed a lot of um, those early years of always being kind of in transition, being able to manage change, being able to um, fold into a new community and a new environment. And I didn't really realize it, obviously, until these last 11 years or so being a coach, how much that formed my ability to show up in a room where I never didn't know anybody before or to stand out in a crowd where maybe people had never met me. Oh, I, my goodness. So you you moved, you said like five or six times in the same general yeah, area. We, we, so five elementary schools, meaning that, and a couple of times before that we moved. So I went to kindergarten, one school here in San Jose, and then we moved to New York and I lived on Long Island, New York for about two and a half years. And as soon as I started getting that cute little New York accent, dad toured the ball to me. <laughs> dad was not too happy about that. And we moved back to California. <laughs> I don't know why he never really told me, but I heard that that was a rumor that when he'd heard me starting to uh, adopt the Long Island accent, he decided we were moving back to California for whatever reason. So we moved back to Cupertino and then he got a promotion and we moved to Saratoga. And then my parents got divorced and we moved back to Cupertino. 
And so between all of those, those different years, uh, that equates to five different elementary schools. So I'm, I'm just hearing early on this need for reinvention, resiliency, changing your social groups, going from this place to that, dealing yeah. with a divorce and, as a young person. And at the same time, I was seven, eight, nine years old. So none of that was conscious, but it was, you know, that survival skill that I created within myself. And, and honestly, like I get a lot of that from my dad as well. He was in sales. He was a very gregarious, extroverted kind of guy. Everyone loved him. He was super popular. And I know that a lot of my positivity and my resilience I got from him even before I recognized that that's what it was in my life. So, you know, looking back on it as an adult and recognizing the gifts that I got from my parents all those years ago, I know that um, a lot of that was because as the older child of two we, you know, and moving around, you kind of do that in order to live your life. Um, the opposite is to me, was to me, not something that would have been okay, right. To close down, to not be open to making new friendships and stuff like that would have been a very um, sad childhood, I think. And I had a fine childhood. And even with my parents getting divorced when I was, I think it was fifth grade, um, that, that finished up and we ended up moving as I was going into sixth grade. Um, you know, even though that change obviously was significant in our household and changed a lot of dynamics between myself and my parents and my sister, um, the need and the ability to go into a new place and have a new teacher and be, you know, with new students was nothing new to me at that point. So it allowed me to continue to succeed in school and to, you know, continue to develop into me. So like so many people from the South Bay area, you ended up going to San Jose state. I did. Yeah, I did. And I didn't really start out that way. I thought that I was going to go to Sac state, actually Sacramento state. Um, and, but that was kind of a plan with a boyfriend of the time we were both going to go and we broke up. <laughs> so it was a little dramatic because I thought that, you know, this particular year, summer of 1990, I was planning to move to Sacramento or to apply to Sacramento. I had one more year before I was going to transfer and that relationship fell apart. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. I spent most of those years post divorce living with my mom and um, at the time at that, that kind of time frame, I was living with some girlfriends in an apartment. I was going to transfer to Sacramento state and that boyfriend and I were both going to go there. And since we broke up, I didn't know what to do. Called my dad and I'm in tears. Oh, I don't know what to do. He's like, well, you could come live with us. And I was like, oh my God, thank you so much. Like that was a dream because I never had lived with my dad and my stepmom. Um, since my parents got divorced, I was always with living with my mom. I mean, there was shared custody, but I didn't live with them. And so it was a very, um, it was kind of the anchor that I needed when I didn't know what the future held. So the opportunity to go and live with them, they had a room for me with like a separate entrance. I felt very, you know, adult and at the same time, very well, uh, cared for and kind of rescued out of the situation that I didn't know what the future held. You know, those early breakups are really tough. 
They, they, yeah, they really was, are dramatic. It was brutal. Tough. The, the world stops and it's never going to be the same again. And, and, and everything. Well, so, you know, it's interesting because I mean, I'm, I'm not saying any of that to put any kind of blame on any, I honestly, I should put the blame on myself because I was a very bad person at the time. Um, <laughs> a big part of that was all my doing, but nonetheless, the, what the future held was now a mystery. And now that I'm as a coach now, it's one of those recurring themes that I recognize in so many people's stories. It's all about not knowing what the future holds. Those Un, not unmet expectations, but like just not knowing what the future holds. For instance, with the pandemic, these last few years, that's what every single person went through is not knowing what the future holds, that, that lack of being able to predict con, uh, confidently what's next in your life. And that's a theme that, you know, was huge these last five years. It was huge for me at that moment. And those are, I think, those pivotal moments in our lives where it's like, I don't know what the future holds next, but I have to go forward. So what am I going to do? And that decision of what are you going to do, like puts you on whatever that path is that you're going to take. And it's such that fork in the road. And sometimes it's not, you know, sometimes that fork has three times and sometimes it has 10, like it could be a really big fork. And until you make the decision to go down one of those paths, you have no idea what the future is going to look like. And so at that moment, when I decided to move in with my dad and my stepmom, it was just like that. I knew that there was, um, there was a lot of safety there. There was a lot of, um, like, if I do this, I know that everything will work out. I don't know what it is, but I know it'll work out. And it was very, um, I, I really needed that at that moment when other options were like, I don't know if it's going to work out. This is one that I could count on. Well, you end up going through San Jose state mm-hmm. and at a certain point, the next kind of stage of life comes for you. What were you seeing for your future at a certain point? Well, while I was at San Jose state, I met my first husband. We didn't meet there, but that was the time, same time frame, those early nineties. And, um, while I was actually still in school, we moved in together and that whole kind of relationship and next phase of life began, right? Living with a guy, which is the first time I ever lived with a guy and seeing that this relationship was something that was going to move on for a very long time. Ultimately, I did graduate from college. I got my first job out of college about a week before graduation, actually. And that was actually a company that I worked for for 17 years until I left corporate was that all that one company. We were a consulting firm. So even though I worked for one company, we were small and we were super um, agile and we worked for all of the bigger companies in Silicon Valley during the late 90s, year 2000, early 2000s, which is the dot-com bubble, the burst, like all of these things that happened. So I learned in, in my work about the economy and how all of those things affect a company of size and how companies got created and then they merged and then they grew and then they shrunk and then they broke. And, and it was a really great learning curve. Um, at the same time, I was in this relationship with Paul, my first husband, and 
he, uh, at, during a period of that time, was working for a band and was on the road a lot. So while we were in this relationship living together, uh, he wasn't there. And I went through a real period of um, adjustment where I, th- I probably was, could have been diagnosed with depression. He was gone for the better part of three years mm. off and on. And at work, it was really starting to affect my work. So one day on the job, I yelled at a client and it was bad. Like, I don't remember exactly what it was about, but I remember the fallout from that. And I got called to my boss's house, actually, again, small company, right? We all knew each other pretty personally. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, I don't know what's going on, but this is going to like affect your career if you don't do something. And this is what we want to do to help. And they sent me to Dale Carnegie training, oh, wow. which I know, right? So I'm, it was what so a lucky. Great company. Like, it gave me an opportunity to recognize, um, to see the bigger picture of my day-to-day existence. Uh, which is a huge value as we move forward in the story too. But to understand that that as you let things build up, they turn into something that you never intended if you're not paying attention. So they sent me to the Dale Carnegie training, which was amazing. I learned how to be a speaker. I learned how to be a teacher. It was kind of already teaching, but like in a classroom type of setting. And ultimately graduating from that program, I got to come back and be a student, like a, an intern also teaching the class around the second time. It was my first real understanding of any kind of personal and professional development that wasn't technical, you know, that was more internal and understanding of your, your mind and your, your um, kind of your, your, you know, your thoughts behind your, what you're doing huge value. I even, I still have all of my books and all of the content from that because it was so life-changing for me. Um, I think that had that, well, I was about to say, if had that not happened, you know, things would have been different. Of course they would have, because every major event like that would send you down a different path, but it was a huge, um, I'm always very grateful for that opportunity to have taken that class. The company, yes, they saw that that could really help me turn things around. And it did. I was with that company for 17 years. I left at a very high level and I left because it was time for me to leave, not because opportunities were gone or, you know, any other negative reason. It was just a lot had changed. And so, uh, yeah. I'm so impressed with a company who would recognize that an employee is beginning to struggle for whatever reason they're struggling. uh, They've done something that is out of characteristic for them. Exactly. And they sat down with them and started with trying to understand and then offered a major benefit to you for all that you have done. That is, is frighteningly rare in mm. the corporate world. And so this this sounds like a, an amazing group of people that were yeah. around you that wanted to support you, that really cared for you and, and, and put a major piece of education in your path. Yeah, it's really true. And, um, you know, that company still is around. They're obviously have gone through a lot of changes. Like we were talking, um, I graduated from college in 95. I started there 
a week before graduation and they, I think I was, I may have been the first actual employee of the company, but they still exist. And, um, you know, the original founders have retired since then and stuff, but we did a lot of really great work um, over the years. And, you know, the, one of the other really amazing things that that allowed me to do was since we were a small company working in kind of a consulting fashion, I never felt like I was, you know, a corporate number in a, you know, one of thousands, right? I was one of 15 or 30, depending on, you know, the year and how big we got that year. Right. So, you know, we were always very small, yet we worked at these big companies. So we were able to bring an agility and an understanding of, you know, kind of what's right, not what corporate requires in a lot of sense. And, um, and the companies that we worked for were, I mean, gosh, all the way, you know, from applied materials and Hewlett Packard and all of the giants to companies that no longer exist because it was during the bubble in the 2000s. So, you know, we got a lot of really great um, understanding and perspective from how different companies run each other. And I think that helps me in understanding my coaching clients who maybe are in corporate now and are trying to leave or have had their own corporate experience. And knowing that, you know, all of those experiences are different, yet there's a lot of similarities, no matter how big the company was. And so we get to help them, you know, understand how that's affected them as well. So you're in this position here where you've got some depression coming from your situation at home. Um, Paul is gone doing a touring, uh, a touring group activity yep. uh, for, for a living. You're, you're feeling depression and irritability at work. And this training program through the Carnegie um, uh, Institution, how did that affect your just overall well-being? Well, a big part of how everything kind of came to resolution is Paul went off the road. He was working for a rock band at the time, actually. Okay. Um, and, you know, I obviously I told him what was going on and I was just like, I need you to come home. And he came home right? And, and shifted gears from what he was doing into doing other things. And he was always kind of the idea guy. I don't know. Did you ever get a chance to meet him? Did you ever know him? I'm not sure I did. I don't know if you did. Um, so he was, he came from New Orleans, very, um, very creative, youngest of, youngest of nine. Um, and just a super creative, unique human. He was the idea guy. And I was always the implementer, right? I'm the one that's working corporate. I'm bringing home the bacon, right? I'm, I'm, I'm working the job and he's coming up with all the ideas and doing this creative thing. And, oh, let's start this. And, oh, let's do that. And what if we did this someday? Always ideas. And so I think without him there, I just kind of fell into a rut of nothing is interesting, nothing is good, you know, and having him come home, of course, you know, change, changed everything going forward. It wasn't too long after that that we bought our first house. We decided to get married. We decided to start our family. He, uh, shortly after our first son was born in 2006, Paul was diagnosed with cancer. And you know, we spent the next four years 
managing his illness. He was going to treatments. He had chemo. He had radiation. It went away. It came back. Like all of all of the this experiences anyone's had with cancer pretty much happened with him, including that after a four-year struggle, he passed away. Left me at home with two little kids. Um, they were one and a half and four when he passed. And I was still working for that same company that I was working for originally. So they had been with me from straight out of college through this whole relationship, through getting married, through the, through the kids, through his illness, his recovery, his recurrence and his passing. So again, back to that company, I'm very grateful for, you know, every, they were my family at the time, um, helping me go through everything. And after he was gone, you know, I spent obviously the, the period of time shortly after that, you know, the next year, year and a half in that grief fog. And for everyone, that amount of time is different and what happens in your life is different. But for me, it looked like I didn't have any family nearby. My parents that I'd lived with in college, they had moved to Florida. Uh, my mom, who I'd grown up with, had passed away several years before. Um, from cancer also. And so I was basically left to my own devices with a great job, with a great company, with two little kids. And that was where we were at. I would get up in the morning, take them to daycare, go work the job, come home, you know, pick them up, come home, get them to bed, medicate with some junk food and some wine because I'm a mom and <laughs> go to bed and do it all over again every day for who knows how long. Um, about a year and a half after he died, I said, finally kind of woke up a little bit more and said, I'm going to have to do something different because this sucks and it's hard and every day is hard and I'm tired of being in survival mode because I was still me inside somewhere and I wanted to be energetic and positive and ready to, you know, do all the things but I was exhausted and, and it was really hard. So um, I decided that I would figure out how to start feeling better. Like I said, I had had two kids and gone through all of that. So I had a lot of extra weight on me. I you know, was survival mode day to night and over again. So I said, you know, if I do something about kind of feeling better about myself and my body, I will start to have more energy and start to feel better about doing other things in my life. And this is a pretty classic kind of weight loss transformation kind of story, right? You say, oh, I'm going to lose a bunch of weight and I'll feel better. And you lose a bunch of weight and you feel better because that's how bodies work. <laughs> Excuse me. But the kicker is that I found this health program that helped me lose this weight that had a coach. And so this is how I found out about coaching. I was in the corporate world. We, in the 2000s, 2010, we didn't really talk about coaching in the corporate world back then, right? So I got a health coach, had success, and all of a sudden, everyone's asking me what I did. And my coach is telling me, you know, you could help them because they're your friends and they want what you have. And which is kind of the, the theme of coaching, right? We help those who want what we have. 
I've had this success. I've learned these things. I'm going to help people learn the things that I learned. And so that's how I started coaching. This was in 2012. And um, I didn't know that coaching was the thing that was going to kind of be my next big fork in the road. I just knew that I was happy kind of in my body for the first time in a long time. I felt better. I had more energy. And um, and people were looking for the same thing. So I started started coaching them and what I was doing. And the other thing that that gave me was a new access into personal professional development again, because the coaching world is all about it. And I hadn't really done anything since Dale Carnegie way back before. So I started reading books, listening to books, I should say. Uh, and I still remember the very first one that I listened to in that period of life, which was Matthew Kelly. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a, um, he's great. And he's Australian. So he's got a great accent. And like I said, I listen to books. So I can still hear him in my head from 11 years ago, talking about becoming the best version of yourself. And it was the beginning of this, this path that I'm on now. I started coaching in April of that year. By the end of summer, I started thinking about maybe this could be a path to me having my own business where I could uh, be more in charge of my schedule and be more available to my kids who were now in preschool and kindergarten and I still never got to see them. And they didn't have another parent and we didn't have any family nearby. So maybe this was a way where I could move closer to my parents, closer to Paul's family who was in Louisiana, Florida, at least in driving distance and change the way that my kids were gonna grow up. Because the way that it is now is daycare. And that's like, it was that whole story, single mom daycare situation. So that's what I did. I decided that fall that I was going to move to Florida. I did the math on cost of living in California, cost of living in Florida, what I was making in my current job, what I was making on the side coaching as I built that business in the off hours. And when the scales tipped, and I realized I could make more, make enough money to live in a lifestyle that is something that I would be happy about in Florida, that I would make the jump. So I did. That December, we moved to Florida. So you have this naturally sunny disposition. <laughs> You've always had this. And, you know, as you're talking about this majorly trying time in your life, you're alone for this period of time of about a year and a half after your husband has passed away. You have to deal with the grief. You have to keep moving, keep moving. You have these two small children that have to go through the grief that a little child goes through and, and everything like that. And through this period of time, you're having to come to a couple of realizations is the work and the life that I have sustainable and trying to hold it together for as long as you can until you just realize I can't do this. Can you talk about the kind of emotional kaleidoscope that you went through in that period of time? Oh that is such a good word. I love that because it is, it's like a mess and beautiful all at the same time. Right. But definitely a mess. Um, 
Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, I remember, so this was in like 2010, 2011. So we're talking 12 years ago. And I remember um, driving in my minivan uh, with the kids or (laughs) even without them, but even before Paul died and they would stay at home or they stay at home or someone would be there or whatever. Um, and I remember driving in the car by myself crying, hmm. right? Cause that was the time that I had to myself. Yeah. And after he died, that time to myself crying was like talking to him. Like that was our, my time to process a lot of the thoughts and feelings that I was having that I didn't have anyone to talk to about. And I didn't have um, any time when I was just by myself to do it. So it was while I was driving in the car. So that's a big piece of that kaleidoscope is like being in the car, just, okay, I'm going to let it all out right now. Because as soon as I park the car, I got somewhere I got to be and something I got to do. I also... You know, one of the great things that happened as he was in his last six months or so, my second child was a year old that December and Paul passed in May. So over the course of that ending period, we were having a lot of visitors. Family was coming to visit. You know, we knew that even though Paul was going through treatments, he wasn't ever going to be cured. It was all about how long is he going to last. And so people were visiting because that's what you do when your loved one is terminal. And, um, and so that's also like one of those weird pieces of the kaleidoscope is people were always coming and going yet. I went to work. I had two kids. Like there was a lot of, it's, it's a lot of blur. And so the whole messy beauty is that a lot of it, I don't really remember a lot of details. It's, uh, it's the, the, you know, the, the idea that it all happened and we made it through, but I don't really remember how awful it was except for a couple of key moments. And, um, and so, you know, you have to, as someone who's gone through that grief and other grief, what I always share with people who are struggling in that way is that it just is what it is. And you can't make it be different. You can't make your experience be something. You have to just navigate through it until you can see what it was before. Like you can't, it's the whole being able to to know what's coming. You can't know what's coming. You don't know how you're going to feel tomorrow. So be in the moment today and you'll know by tomorrow that it's different because it's always different every day. Is there a role that spirituality played for you in this period? Well, I mean, it did. And it did not a huge role. Um, I actually did go through the RCIA program to become a Catholic before we had kids, that was kind of one of those, Hey, we, we lived together. We bought a house. Then we got married. Then I decided that if we're going to have kids, I should convert. And I didn't have really any religious background growing up church a couple of times when I was young type of thing. My parents weren't devout at all. So, um, so, but Paul grew up Catholic youngest of nine, as I mentioned. 
So, uh, so I decided, okay, I'm going to do this. And that happened, you know, so that happened. I got baptized. I went through the RCA program, all that stuff. That was great. And we went to church regularly when, especially when we lived in the mountains, those last few years, every Sunday, and the church was wonderfully supportive during Paul's illness. Um, you know, we had his funeral there. To, we had two funerals actually for him, one at our church there in the mountains in, in Las Gatos and one in New Orleans where he is, his remains were interred. Um, so, you know, I can't say no, it didn't have a role, but being brought into the church later in my life, I think that was really just like a piece of the journey that had always been, which was, you know, I always believed in God. I always had this, you know, spirituality to me that didn't have a definition. It just was. And while I was baptized Catholic, I think that always still felt the same deep down was okay. Like Catholicism is beautiful and look at the churches and the history and the, the, what do you call it? The rituals and, and all of the ceremony of it. But that was more like icing on the cake and the cake was still just in me. If that makes sense. I've never that used that cake sense. analogy, yeah. but that's, that's what came out. Um, so it really was just more about, um, being able to kind of anchor myself in whatever moment I was in, whether that was, I'm talking to God, or I'm talking to my husband who's dead, or I'm talking to, you know, the sky in front of me shaking my fist because I'm angry, who knows? So, yeah. Well, so you've spent all of this time with this company. It was very good to you. Mm-hmm. Everything in your personal life has changed. Um, everything from 2008 through 2011 was this economic cataclysm mm. of real estate through the entire market. Yep. And so you, at this point, have this decision to make. You make this decision that you're going to move to Florida and do a complete overhaul on your whole life. How right. scary was that? It's exactly what they tell people not to do when you have a big loss in your life, right? Don't make any major decisions. Well, so you mentioned the housing crisis and all of that. What I haven't, what I didn't mention in this whole story is I also short sold my house. So Paul and I lived with the kids up in the Los Gatos mountains. We had this acreage. It was wonderful. After he died, I couldn't navigate. I couldn't manage that space anymore. Too much work, too much yard, power outages. And it was brutal. It was a bummer to have to sell the house only partially because it was a dream to live. It was beautiful and we had a view and it was wonderful. But Paul was the one who took care of the property and I went to work and did the job. So without him there to handle the property and deal with the generator when the power went out, you know, because that happened a lot. Um, I said, well, I'm going to have to sell this house. And if this is 2010, 2000, yeah, 2010. And so uh, the house was, you know, horribly underwater and there was no market. And they're like, well, you can short sell. And I said, well, I'm, that's what I'm going to have to do because the power went out for 24 hours. And I thought to myself, there's no way I can handle this in the winter when this happens for five days. Like this just was no way I had to leave. So that was the first kind of big decision that I made after he passed, which was short sell the house and get out. Thankfully, it didn't kill my credit. 
I don't know why, but we did sell a house. Someone else, you know, was excited to have the opportunity to live there. We moved back down into the suburbs of San Jose. And then the, um, the, the, you know, we were there for about a year and a half or so before the coaching thing started. So was it scary? It wasn't scary because I saw, because I was moving in a direction. I have a friend who sent me a message just this morning. I was sent her a note yesterday to check in and she's like, well, I'm having kind of a struggle because this Sagittarius, she's describing herself, this Sagittarius likes to be gallop, likes to point the arrow and be galloping towards it. And I was like, oh, that is such a good fellow Sagittarius right here, right? Point the arrow and be galloping towards it. That is totally my MO that she just gave to me this morning. So I'm grateful to her. Um, When, when I think, I think when I was at the job, I was not in the office with my boss, right? I was out in the field doing my job with the client day in and day out. We check in now and then, but I wasn't being managed. I wasn't, we didn't have like super regular check-ins, but I'm sure that she saw that things were changing, right? Facebook is a thing. She saw that. And, you know, over the, and then I went on vacation and then I came back and, you know, you can still tell when someone's energy is shifting. So when I called her and said, Hey, I'd love to come into the office for a meeting. She knew what was up because she'd seen everything that had been happening for the year. So was it scary? It wasn't scary at all. I went in, I said, I'm going to give my notice. I'm going to give you three months worth of notice because this is not about having a new job. This is about having a new life. And I'm going to be leaving the state. I'm going to be moving to Florida. Uh, my lease is up at, you know, beginning of December or whatever. And that's when we're we're going to go and we're going to be in Florida by Christmas. And, um, and she understood she'd been my boss for 17 years. She knew me and she knew that it was time to make, you know, an adjustment that will be for our future. So it wasn't scary at all. It was challenging, um, the next six months or so, because I didn't know how to work for myself as a new entrepreneur, you know, the first six months of coaching, I was still working corporate. It was all just on the side. But once I didn't have that job and I take the kids to school and now I'm home by myself, I didn't really know how to be self-employed. I didn't know how to be an entrepreneur. So it was an adjustment. And it took me a couple of years really to to get into a groove because I also moved back to California and got remarried. And, you know, there's more to the story, but it took me a while to figure out how to... um, you know, the transition is the, the turn towards the transition is just the turn, but the transition continues until you get into the, into the groove, I think. Well, yeah. So, so you, you go and you're transitioning into this while you're in Florida and then you mm-hmm. meet your current husband there or no. how did that happen? So my current husband, we've known each other since I was 17. We've been friends the entire time. Um, and in fact, he, I have pictures of him holding my firstborn at, you know, a couple of days, as soon as we got home from the, the hospital, a couple of days later, um, because we were friends the whole time, you know, obviously geography changes. He was overseas. He was in the military. He was overseas for a while. I lived, you know, X, Y, Z places. In fact, while the second 
our second kid was being born. Tim was actually in the hospital, his sick himself. So, you know, life throws a lot of, of curveballs, but he and I um, were always close from 1986 all the way till now, till today and onward. So, you know, he was with me when, um, you know, when Paul was sick, he helped me with the funeral arrangements. And when I got robbed, he helped repair the door. And when I moved, he helped me pack. And as we were moving to Florida, you know, Tim would always tell me that the, he doesn't mind helping people move, but he hates helping them pack because packing is terrible. No one likes packing, but he was always the guy with the truck. So he was always willing to help people move. But as I'm planning to move to Florida and I'm me with two little kids, of course, he's going to help me. We're friends. But um, as we get closer and closer to the date, <laughs> excuse me closer and closer to the date of our actual departure, it started to become apparent that the separation of our friendship was going to be more than just see you later. And uh, basically as, as we were leaving, we're just like, this is a problem. Hmm. Um, you know, we already had a house leased and airline flights scheduled yet. Uh, you know, we didn't want to be separated even for another day. So we ended up doing the long distance relationship thing for the next six months or so. And, um, you know, he came out to visit like a month later, two months later, back and forth. And by the end of that next June, six months later, we were engaged. And the kids and I said, well, time to pack again. Because, you know, when we moved to Florida, we did it in the middle of the school year, like Christmas break. And so my, my oldest, who was in first grade at the time, had to split his school year, right? And you know how if you join a school and, and having gone to five elementary schools, I was like, oh, he'll be fine. Five elementary schools, it's all fine. But it was hard for him. You know, he was still struggling with um, kind of, he's super smart, so he's struggling kind of with fitting in at school um, because all he wanted to do was read and all the other boys wanted to do was like kick dirt. So um, I didn't want to split the school year again. So when we got engaged, I think it was July 1st, June 30th or July 1st, we decided that we would get back here before school started, which was, um, I think we moved here on August 9th. So went back to Florida, took six weeks to pack and sell stuff because now we were consolidating houses, not just me moving. Got sold my car, sold my furniture, sold my piano, packed up and brought everything back here. And we were back here in the beginning of August so the kids could start school, start the school year. A total renewal here. I'm really starting to see how your story really melds perfectly into your approach because your coaching approach, you specifically work with women who want to start entrepreneurship and who need to be in some way self-reliant at, at various different capacities and so forth. So your story, it, it melds into your coaching philosophy and who it is that you work with. So your, your coaching, who is it for? What do you do? Yeah. What are your values? You know, as you're saying that, I'm like, but there's a piece missing and I want to make sure to cover that. I help yeah. women to be bold. That is my gift to them and my gift to people because being 
as a woman in business, thankfully the company that I worked for was also owned by women, right? So I never had the like, oh, you're a second class person in my company, but I worked in corporate. So I saw how companies ran and I saw the old boy network and all of that kind of stuff. And what I know is that in various client environments, there was a certain way I needed to act in order to be accepted and respected for the work that I was doing. I had one client once that told me after I was on a, I was on a phone call and, you know, I had a headset, this is the nineties, right? Had my headset on and I'm talking with my hands, looking at my spreadsheet, talking with the, the project manager for the furniture that we were going to be installing. And he and I had worked together for a long time, great friendship, really fun. And I get off the phone and the client comes over and says, Tracy, you're being too loud. You need to be quiet. And I felt really bad because what I knew was that he and his bosses were like over the cubicle wall from me. And I had been causing a disturbance, which I didn't intend. I was just excited and like doing my thing. But it told, I, I, took my post-it notes that day and I wrote be quiet on a post-it note and I stuck it right on my monitor so that I would remember next time to not be so loud when I'm on the phone which started to translate into I have a persona to be at work that is professional softer spoken than normal quieter Tracy when I left that client to move on to the next client I took my little post-it with me and put it on that monitor so that the day I arrived, I would show up in a way that they expected so that I would be respected for the knowledge that I have and not be this giant personality. So the women that I work with often have felt that very same way, that they need to fit into a box in order to be accepted in work, that if they're too loud, or speak their mind too much, that there is a too much, first of all. And secondly, that they'll be judged, that they'll be judged in a way that they would not be accepted in what they're doing. And I'm here to tell them that that's a bunch of bullshit and that you need to be yourself. Now, are there times where we have to be appropriate for the environment? Sure. Am I going to go be this wild and crazy person going into church? Probably not. But you know what? I also probably am not going to go to a church where I can't. So it's also about understanding yourself, knowing who you are and what's important to you and being able to be that person so that if you're looking for clients, you're authentic and they're attracted to that. You're not putting on a show being a performer and having them be attracted to something that's not real, right? Because business and finding clients and serving them is not, is all about attraction. It's whether or not the person that you are and the person that they are connect so that you can learn and grow together. And if you're not being the real you, then that connection isn't real either. So it's really important to help. So, so the idea of bold, you know, comes from, well, 
actually the idea of bold came from a conference that I went to. And at the end of the conference, the leader gave us stickers and Sharpies and said, you know, I know you all have all this to-do list of all these things that you want to do when we're done and when you go home. But it actually was a cruise conference and we were at sea for a week. So we've been on the ship for a week. You have all these things that you want to do when you get home, but I want to know how you're going to be different. Not what you're going to do, but how you're going to be different when you leave. And I took my Sharpie and I took my sticker and I wrote bold in capital letters and I stuck it to my chest. And people were really surprised because this was four years ago. So it was already six years into coaching, kind of back to my normal self already. And I'm a speaker. So I was in front of the room and I have no concern about talking in front of the crowd or, you know, and I'm not soft-spoken. I'm six feet tall. At the time I had purple hair. Like, they're like, what do you mean you want to be bold? Look at you. (laughs) And I said, well, I can appreciate that. And I can act bold. I can show up bold. I can look bold, sound bold. But what I needed to remember was on the inside that I really needed to be, embody that word and that feeling of the true authenticity and the true self and allow it to come out so that I can help other people crack through their barriers that are keeping them from being bold also. How old are your children now? (laughs) 14 and 17. So how much of this is you providing the framework for the kind of people that you want them to be? Well, I mean, ever since the day they were born, right? I mean, that's parenthood. We want them to be them, their best self. I mean, okay. I'm speaking for me. I'm speaking for a lot of people I know. It's sadly not all parents, right? Some parents want their child to be seen and not heard and all those things. I believe that our job is to not raise children, but to raise adults. And that those people that they become are the people who are going to be figuring out the laws when we're old, A, if they ever get the chance, I mean, come on, (laughs) you know, there's that whole, I mean, it's all part of it, right? Agreed. My 17 year old, he's amazing. He sadly sometimes believes that no matter what he does, nothing's going to change. And, and at the same time, we'll see what happens, but he thinks he might want to be a politician. So he's got kind of this two-sided thing going, like, I want to be president and nothing's ever going to change. So I don't know what, you know, we'll have to see how that plays out. He's still 17, but yeah, since the day they were born, you know, even if I had to show up smaller at work, my goal is for them to be themselves. Right. So while they were little, I was still showing up how I thought I needed to at work. As they got older and as I left corporate and got into coaching and yeah, coaching is the best parenting, you know, education I ever got because it taught me how to listen and it taught me how to get wins, win-win situations, right? It's, I would have been a very different parent had all of this not happened, of course, had I been the girl with the job as opposed to the girl who's trying to uh, let people create their own futures. 
Yeah. Yeah. My, my goodness. Like I'm, I'm just, I'm really in awe of your whole story here because a lot it's of a these lot. things, they all happened at once. It was this couple of years period of time in there where you pretty much lost almost everything that there is and then made a decision to go in a different direction. And it's, and it's seeped into the identity for you. You no longer have to tell yourself to be quiet, to be a cubicle person and everything like that. You are bold and you help women to really right. speak out and, and, and not only discover their power, but live by it. Yeah. And, 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 and also kind of be that light, not only for them, but for your children as well. For sure. Yeah. I mean, first for my children, you know, no offense, clients and friends and family, but first for my children, um, because that's the most important job I have. And, you know, knowing, knowing that, um, you know, every day is an opportunity for learning for someone, right? When, you know, we've had so much happen in the political arena these last few years. Every time we have something good that happens, I'm there to highlight it for them, right? When, uh, you know, when something happens that is is monumental, we're there to point it out so that people will notice, look, this is something that's important and it's formative to your life. And I think that's a big part of, you know, raising kids, but also helping my clients is the things that happen in our lives form our lives, but not only the things that happen, but what we think about them and what we do next, right? We get, we have a woman vice president inaugurated. And I remember sitting on the sofa, watching that, thinking to myself, wow. And you know, it's another step in that history that is formative for our lives. You know, I don't know how that's going to play out with anything in the future. And I didn't know that day either. But that's also kind of the point is we don't know how it's going to play out in the future, but recognize the moments as we move forward. So that in the end, we can go back and go, and that was a turning point. And that made a difference. And this happened. And that happened. And it's all part of the path that we're on as we go forward, for sure. How has fear and anxiety played <laughs> into your story? Have you had to fight that or has that been a yeah. part of things? Well, yes. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, for sure. And, you know, I think that the fear and anxiety type of, of reaction for me has come at the times where I needed support, right? Where I didn't know how to ask for help. And I definitely didn't know how to receive help. Um, this is why I have a community. And it goes back to five elementary schools, right? I was on my own. I had to figure out how to navigate being the new kid all the time. I didn't have a support circle. I mean, I had my parents, but then I didn't have my parents because I got divorced. 
right? So I really was very much on my own. Even when Paul was sick, we always said it was like him and me against the world. Very small circle, like him and me, and then a baby and another baby and a couple of friends, one who is now my husband, right? So small circles, meaning that it took a lot for me to, and it probably goes back to the divorce stuff and all of that new kid stuff is that you couldn't really rely on a large circle of support because that circle was always going to change and be gone. So this is where you get into the therapy part. Thank you, Jeremy. (laughs) But, you know, the, but the benefit of all of it is like we always said that resilience. So I needed to figure out, and this is where coaching took me too. If I'm going to help other people, I better figure out how I value help. Because if I don't value help, how am I going to help other people? Like, I can't value my own help if I'm not accepting of help. Like, so there was this whole education and realization that came to me as I started coaching and understanding how I was holding myself back because I was unable to ask for and receive help for myself, yet I was trying to help others. And once that all started to kind of make sense, um, things really started to change. I remember after Paul's funeral, I went, we were at church one weekend and there was a woman there who came up to me and, you know, they all knew who I was, two little kids, tall blonde lady, dead husband. We all, everyone knew. (laughs) And she came up to me and said, Hey, I am starting a catering company and I had trying all these recipes and have all this food and I don't have anything to do with it. I'd love to be able to give you and your kids some of that, you know, if that's helpful to you. And I thought to myself, I could never, like, I don't need your food. I make all this, I make money. I've got my job. I'm fine. Everything's fine. No, thank you. I turned her down. And this was in 2010. I still remember this 13 years ago because I don't know if she had a catering company, but I think she could see right through me and knew that there was, she needed to come up with a way to offer the help in a way that hopefully I would accept it, but I didn't, but I still remember that day. And that was, that's a story that I go back to on and on that like, you know what? It would have been really nice to have said yes. And to have accepted that help and had whatever it was that I could just put in the microwave and feed my children and myself. Of course, they probably wouldn't have eaten it because they were toddlers, but myself. And and in hindsight, it was a big aha for me to recognize that my inability to receive the help that was offered to me Mm. was um, something that was holding me back from being more generous myself. So um, so that was a big a big aha. So that's all about fear and anxiety, fear of looking weak, fear of people thinking that I don't have it all under control. Right. This is all when I was a perfectionist. And I mean, things have changed a lot since then. And, you know, sometimes they're not as different as you think they are, but I really like to think that if I really need help, I know how to ask for it. And if I, um, and, and that what's important in your life in order to be able to do that is community. Having people around you 
who you know, who you trust, who you know you're in alignment with as far as your values and your um, even your energy and your 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 kind, you know, the values, the kindness, your your understanding, your ability to listen and and make people feel heard and understood. Those are all things that in our community, these are the people that I surround myself with now. And so, like I mentioned, my friend, my fellow Sagittarius friend, I just sent her a note. Hey, haven't heard from you in a while. Checking in. She had told me that she was thinking about buying a house in Italy. I want to hear about your new plans. Give me an update. So exciting. She's like, and she gave me her honest answer. Actually, things are kind of rough right now. And this is, you know, what's going on because there's trust between us. And I've got 20 people instead of just one or two. And maybe it's not even 20. Maybe it's more than that. It's probably more than that. If I really think through it, where the community that we've cultivated around us in our coaching community and in our entrepreneurial community, that it's the thing that allows you to be yourself so that you can grow. And, um, and that's what helps navigate, helps you navigate the things like fear. Because there's always going to be fear. The question is, what do you do when you have it, right? Courage is not not having fear. Courage is acting anyway. So this is really poignant here because the one thing that I see that modern humans really are struggling with, and I think that there's not really necessarily a strong awareness of, is that we have lost community. In Absolutely. so many ways, you know, we stay home, we have our, our, our screens at home and, and we, we experience the world right. through on, uh, through watching movies, through seeing, uh, through being on Zooms with people at work and so forth. But the, the home community, the community of people around you that are like-minded to you, in general, I'm not seeing most people being engaged with a real, true community of supporters that have what is considered a mastermind, a mastermind of success, support, being there for you. And you've created that in your coaching right. space and you have that. And so that that people are actually getting that kind of go, go, go on behind you kind of support. Well, and that's, I mean, that's the whole story. So the gather community is the name of my community. And the whole reason why it even exists is because of COVID, right? We actually began as an in-person event space here in Santa Cruz that I created. It was called gather and gather came to my mind, the idea of creating an in-person space where we could do group activities, workshops where networking can happen, things like that. Um, you know, I was a health, I was health coaching at the time still, and I wanted to be able to have what we called healthy, happy hours, right? Get people together, talk on a topic, have some healthy snacks. Life doesn't have to be about drinking and, and business cards, right? Just let's have life. And, um, and so I started thinking about creating this space and what came to, into my consciousness or whatever my awareness at the time was a Gallup poll that had come out recently and living here in Santa Cruz as you probably can imagine we're here by the beach it's beautiful sunshine right now the the Santa Cruz population scored very high on this poll in health and wellness right it was I don't know if it was health and well I think it was the health and wellness poll but like 
physical activity, healthy eating, you know, all of these components of wellness. And the thing that they scored the worst at was community. And knowing Santa Cruz and having not been a native here, but a transplant and kind of learning about the community as from an outsider's perspective, I could see that. I could see that groups were relatively small unless you were like a surfer. And then like the surfing community is your community. But if you weren't a surfer, it's hard to get in, right? If you weren't born there and born into it, it was hard to get in. And I was finding that as someone new to town, it's kind of hard to get in if you weren't already here. So I decided I wanted to make a space that would bring people together as a newbie. I wanted to bring in everyone that I could so that we could start to grow community together in person. We all thought at the time, we need more in-person community. Well, we opened in October of 2019. And so five months later, we had to close the doors and turn off the lights and wait for what we thought was going to be a couple of weeks, right? <laughs> you yep, remember? 15, 15 days to spread uh, to right? the curves. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. And so, um, you know, we thought it was just going to be a couple of weeks, which is actually really great because we were so busy. I needed like a breather and I needed to hire someone, but I wasn't making a profit yet. I didn't know what we were going to do, but we were having a great time in our space in downtown Santa Cruz. And within a few weeks, a month, six weeks or whatever, we realized that we were not going back in person at all in any way, in any near future. So it took our model of you, of this room and said, you know, the room was designed, here's a room, you can rent the room, I'm going to help you with promotion, I got snacks, I got furniture, I got all this, I got great coffee, come, I got Wi-Fi, come and have your events here in the room. Well, when we couldn't do things in person, I said, well, I'm just going to move this model online. I was already using Zoom for years as a health coach, working with people all around the country. And so let's put people in my Zoom room and I'm going to bring you uh, an understanding of how to fill those rooms, how to get the word out about what you're teaching, bring you people that maybe you never would have met because they're my people, but I know you. So let's cross like overlap those ripples in the pond. And that's how the gather community was born. I said, if you're a member of my community, I'm going to help you with all these things and you're going to pay a membership instead of renting the room. They were members. And that's what we've been doing since the summer of 2020. And it's allowed us to no longer be bound by geography, but to keep connections all around the country North America, you know, globally, really, I mean, time zones are a thing. So, you know, we don't have a lot of people in India or, you know, Eastern Europe, but, uh, but some people from the UK and, um, and it means that we're not bound by geography, that we can reach people all in all these time zones, even though we've never met them, we can meet new people, even though we never would have met them. The only reason we can is because we've created a community that's online that's irrespective of any kind of geographic boundary. And it's three years later, we're still going and we're growing. Really well well done with changing it up and adapting to the yeah, situation thanks. and figuring out a, a, uh, a, a means for growth in this because that's uh, that's what it's had to be in the last couple of years to actually survive in, in times like well this. that's you know that it goes back to we never know what the future holds right right I mean from 
summer of 2020, we knew we weren't going back in time in person anytime soon. We get to December and man, the winter was brutal. We get to in the spring. It's like, oh, maybe we could do things. Maybe we could do something. Maybe we could do. Oh, no, we can't. Here comes in. Here comes Omicron or whatever came next. And oh, this is getting better. Oh, no, here comes Delta. This is going to be that win. You know, so there kept being something new that kept us from going back. And finally, everyone realized that there's never any going back. You can't ever go back even to last week because that's past, right? So a year and a half in, get to the end of 2021, people really want to be in person, but yet they've met people all around the world on Zoom. Do you just forget that that happened? You can't, the online space will never go away. Yeah. It just won't. It's, we are changed. And that's part of what happens, especially in these times of crisis, is that we are changed. And yes, in-person things will happen, but they are for a reason. And the online things can also still happen for a reason. And that reason is that we're still connected in community, even though we don't live nearby. Well, you have an amazing story. And here is where I ask you to do an exercise with me. I'd like for you to just think for a moment about what you want your children to take away from the years that you have spent as an adult and the the changes that you have experienced and the manner in which you have had to change uh, and and reinvent yourself and be resilient. And what is the takeaway that if you had to tell them the most important thing, the things that they need to know about growing up and being in this world and being successful, what would you tell them? You know, I mean, there's a lot of little things that came to mind as you were asking the question, things started to churn. And I think that the bottom line is, you know, I mean, you said resilience and resilience is definitely a big theme for me. Um, but also decision that you get to decide what's next, right? You get to choose what happens or not what happens. You get to choose how you respond to what happens in life. That's something that a mentor said to me a long time ago, and it really helped me start to shift when I was, my kids were young and I was making them lunches every day for school, which, you know, any parent can tell you is just the worst, no one likes making kids lunches. I don't care about those TikTokers who are making fancy stuff. They're lying. No one likes making lunches every single day. And so, and so like the lunch making and also like that I have to take them to their thing. I would, you know, do my, my work while they're at school. And after school, I had, had, I had to pick them up and take my kid to gymnastics or take the kids to karate or whatever. I had to do that. And I started, what was happening, the gymnastics is a good example. What was happening was I was not spending my day very well, like not being productive, wasting time, procrastinating, um, being afraid of doing things. And so I wouldn't do them. And then now it's whatever time, three o'clock or whatever time, have to pick them up and take to gymnastics. And I would get so upset that uh, I have to take, I, I can't, I have to take them to gymnastics. What I realized was I thought that I was mad about my day having to stop and shift to taking care of them when really what I was mad at was myself not spending my own time well. 
And so what my mentor says, you know, but this is something that you want to do, not that you have to do. It's like, no, I, I want to finish this thing. I don't want to have to take it, but you do just like the lunches. You want to do that. And I didn't understand. And she says, well, what would happen if you didn't do it? They're not going to die. Like what's, if you don't make them lunch, what's going to happen? Well, then they won't eat, you know, they won't eat lunch. They don't like the school food. They don't, you know, they won't eat that. And like, is not eating lunch going to be permanently detrimental? Well, I don't want them to not have to eat lunch. Like, or I don't want them to not like it or be hungry or be tired or, you know, all these things that like now my, like, I don't want them to, to not, which mean, which is the double negative of, you know, I want them to be well-fed. I want them to know that I cared enough to make them the lunch. And, you know, if I chose not to, then to me, that would be showing them that I don't care, which is totally the opposite. Of course I care. So my choice is, yes, I want to make them lunch. And once that shift turned around to everything that you do is a choice. So when you say you don't want to do something, but you do it anyway, you actually do want to do it. You just have to find the frame so that you recognize, like, I want to do this because of this. It might not be what you think it is at first. Like, I want to, you know, like go to the gym. I want to go to the gym. Well, not a lot of people are like, yeah, I want to go to the gym. They're like, oh, I got to go to the gym. I don't want to go, but they go anyway, right? You go anyway, because you actually do want to go because you want the results. So when you can decide or when you can recognize that the things that you don't want to do, but you do anyway, you actually do want to do, then now everything is a choice. You chose to do it because you want these results. You chose to make them lunches because you want them to feel loved and to be well-fed. You chose to end your day and take them to gymnastics because you want them to be enriched. And the choice and the decision to do those things, wherever you're upset about it, is something totally different than that choice, right? I was upset about uh, having to make them lunches because I thought it was boring. But when I shifted my brain to, I want to make them something that I know that they'll eat so that they'll be well-fed and be able to learn and grow and thrive. Now I didn't feel so bad about making them stupid, you know, peanut butter and jelly every single day or whatever it was that they were eating that I just was so bored with. I wanted variety, but they want stability. So, you know, it's, it's all about recognizing the choices that we make that will take you in the direction that you are choosing. So to go back to the original question of what would I want my kids to take away is that everything is a choice. And that even when you feel like you don't have a choice, you do, right? Because even if something negative is happening, how you react is your choice. And that goes, you know, that goes hand in hand with resiliency and like navigating disaster and pandemics and death and all of the things, how you react is your choice and who you become after that, whether it's kinder or bolder or, or whatever, more magical. Those are all the choices that you get to make. Tracy, thank you for lifelong friendship. Uh, thank you for constant support and uh, thank you for being 
the inspiration that you are to so many people, to me and, and everyone. How do people get a hold of you? Well, probably the easiest way, since you're going to put my name on here, is tracyroot.com. Um, I do have a Gather Community website as well. I'm on all the social medias. You can find me on Facebook, um, for sure, where we have our Facebook group for the Gather Community as well. Come and join us there, where we talk about everything that we have going on, including workshops, game nights, speaker summits, all kinds of stuff. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. I'm on, you know threads, all the things, no Twitter. We don't do that. But other than that, all of the things. So you can always find me. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us and telling your story and kind of going long form here into deep into your life. And it's just been a pleasure. Yeah, it's all mine. Yeah, the time flew by. So I'm super happy to have been here. Thank you so much, Jeremy. I'm Jeremy Van Wert, the CEO of High Altitude Mindset. Now go be something great.